This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Dr. Byron Bond, Associate Professor in Trine University's Department of Humanities and Communication, and we're going to talk about his background in and thoughts on theater and the media. Byron, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start, can you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Uh, Maybe talk about your background before coming to Trine and kind of how you wound up here. I'd be happy to. I guess I'd call my my background sort of eclectic. I started out in broadcasting, uh, worked my way through college with that and also factory work, and then went to college, got into theater, got into debate, I went to college as a chemistry major and then found I was spending much time with debate and theater, so I went in that route. Then uh, professionally, I taught in high school for 10 years. I went to community college and taught there for 10 years, and then I spent another 11 years there moving through the academic chain of command, uh, the administrative chain. And then I moved on to another university, Indiana State University, Eastern Kentucky University, finally Eastern Michigan University, and then, of course, to Trine. How did you first get interested in the theater? Actually, uh, my father and his twin brother, when I was three, had sort of a vaudeville show, and I had the privilege of delivering some punchlines when I was three years old. I'd walk out on stage and deliver stupid little punchlines, and I just loved the accolades of the audience, <laughs> and that sort of hooked me. And then, of course, through uh, elementary and high school, I was in the, the school plays, the church plays, those kinds of things. And then in college, I, as I said, I started out a chemistry major, chemistry and math, and uh, I just happened to get cast my freshman year and the theater director there sort of hooked me, and I was with theater from then on. Your background has included acting in, directing, and providing technical support for a lot of community theater productions. What have been some of your favorite productions you've been involved with, <laughs> and, and why? Actually, I'm going to shift that question a little bit, if you don't mind, James. My, my best experience with theater, I think, was when I was directing high school theater. Uh, I went into a school where there was a very bad reputation for theater. Audiences came to see the kids mess up. And when I came in, uh, fresh out of college, of course, I had a different attitude about theater. So I started right out with The Crucible, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Started doing some things like a French farce. I did uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. I started doing some classics and sort of upgraded the theater. And by the time I left, the theater program that started out at five students, if I was lucky, ended up being over 150 students who were backstage and on stage in each production. And it was really a delight to see that transition. I also enjoyed, on more of a professional level, I also enjoyed doing some summer theater out in Colorado, in Colorado Springs. That was great fun. I was technical director. We We had main stage, three productions. I was technical director for those. Then we had three studio productions, and I was in each of those. So those are some of my best experiences. Do you have a favorite production, a favorite play to either watch or to be a part of? Oh, I saw Hamilton this summer, (laughs) and that is now my new favorite. Before that, 
Les Mis was one of my favorites. I, I enjoy musicals a lot, but I really like straight drama too. Uh, I'm really very fond of that. Lost in Yonkers, The Diary of Anne Frank, some of those productions are really fun to work on. Where did you see Hamilton? At? Saw it in Chicago. It was okay. a wonderful production. Yeah, my wife and I saw it there as well. and wow. Very much enjoyed it. You've also appeared as an extra in four movies. Uh, how did that come about? And uh, tell me what the experience was like. Well, the simplest answer to how that came about is I was in the right place at the right time. When they were filming A League of Their Own, I lived in uh, Vincennes, and they were filming in Evansville. So I took my family down there in costume, and uh, the people who were sorting through extras said, oh, yeah, we like your costumes, and you look like you're from this era, so here's what you'll do. <laughs> and they put us in that. Uh, Out to Sea was one I was in with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. That was a delightful experience, and we happened to be on the cruise line. And they said, if anyone wants to audition for an extra, uh, come to this station. We did that, my wife and I, and we were both in it, and we were in several scenes of that as well. And then the other two were just serendipitous. I was just there, they were filming, and I would actually fill out the form and say, yes, I'd like to be an extra. And I know The Fugitive was one. The Fugitive, I, my feet are in The Fugitive, yes. Your feet are in The Fugitive. <laughs> That's not the scene where Harrison Ford is diving out the... It's uh, the scene in the Palmer House. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the party scene. Gotcha. Yeah. And I know Turner Classic Movies actually announced recently that uh, A League of Their Own is going to be re-released to movie yeah. theaters this mm-hmm. coming April. Mm-hmm. So where should we look for you when that's well, in the theater? the easiest spot would be the scene where Tom Hanks is going on about there's no crying in baseball. I'm in the background of that scene buying peanuts. <laughs> and so that's identifiable. Other than that, I'm in the crowd a lot when they show the scenes of the crowd at the, the stadium. One of the interesting things they did is they had a lot of uh, cardboard cutouts that they would set for crowds, but uh, I was a little more than cardboard. I actually waved my hands and made some motion. So if you look in the crowd, you'll, you'll see me. You mentioned Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau who yes. were in the one movie, of course, Tom Hanks and Madonna and right. were in a league of their own and, and um, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and The Fugitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you actually get to rub elbows with any of these uh, celebrities? Definitely you know? ran rubbed elbows with the out-to-sea celebrities. Uh, had the opportunity. Walter Matthau was seasick most of the time, and so was I. So we had an opportunity to commiserate. <laughs> And also there were times, uh, I happened to be a, an avid football fan of a particular team, and uh, one evening I was sitting in the lounge, and um, Jack Lemon walked in, and surprisingly enough, he was a fan of the same team, so he and I shared a drink, and then we, we rode on boats together and that sort of thing. But that's, it was really a delight. The person I liked the most, I have to say, was Tom Hanks. He was the most friendly uh, star that I've ever met, and he was really a, a true gentleman. I really enjoyed him. The university uh, recently announced that we're going to be offering a minor in theater. Tell me a little bit about what a theater minor brings to the university. Um, And maybe specifically, you know, we have a lot of engineers here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Engineering and business for many years was all Tri-State University before we became Tri-NHAD. We've expanded our curriculum some, but for students who are like that in those fields, what does a a theater minor offer? Well, the first thing I can think of is it it offers an opportunity to put into practice some of their skills. For instance, the backstage work for theater is, is very complex and very detailed, 
and we enjoy having people who are engineers come. Matter of fact, I have uh, mechanical engineers that work on our set and, and electrical engineers who work with our, our lighting and, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's one venue. The other, I would say, is a lot of students come here and they've been in productions in high school. And this minor gives them an opportunity to get credit for that creative venue. Uh, so I would say it, it gives students our students a creative outlet. Plus, it can prepare them to go on to work in either community theater or to pursue uh, some sort of a, a future training in theater on the side more than the main profession. A common stereotype for, of course, we don't have a theater major, but even right. for those with an academic background in theater is the struggling actor who's waiting on tables and he's hoping to catch the big break on Broadway or in Hollywood. From your perspective, how accurate is that stereotype? Frankly, it's extremely accurate. <laughs> the, the, uh, the life of a wannabe actor or actress is one of, uh, you better find another job on the side and don't quit your day job until you get that break. We're not really, with our theater program, we're not really looking for those students who want to be the star on Broadway. We're looking for people that are trying to be involved in community theater or involved in some way with the creative arts and to give them a foundation for that. For instance, I think uh, elementary teachers who will find themselves directing school plays and doing that sort of thing, this minor would be a really good minor for them to take in particular. I would have guessed for, from your experience, for secondary ed as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any other kind of natural pairings uh, with the theater minor that we're kind of looking at? Or is it, like you said, maybe just for the engineers or the business people or the physical therapists who want to have that want to do the community theater on the side. Right. I think there are some natural pairings. For instance, a, a good business manager is in high demand in professional theater virtually everywhere. Someone who can actually manage the house, who knows how to do the bookkeeping, who knows how to um, organize the whole structure of, of, of the business model behind theater. I think that's a definite practical application, yes. In addition to your theater background, you've also been a media professional, and I think we mm -hmm. were talking a little bit about that before the podcast started. Um, and over your career, you've taught a lot of courses related to mass media. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a, a bit about the, kind of the seismic changes that have occurred <laughs> and that are occurring in the mass media? Well, James, the first thing I have to say is I'm old enough to have lived through most of them. Uh, <laughs> when I was starting in radio, radio was the thing, and we were just thinking about this new thing called cable and, and cable TV, and we were trying to get a license at the local station for that. And, and we were uh, affiliated with a network for the first time while I was an announcer, and it was just an exciting transition to see that. And now the seismic shift, I would have to say, is due to social media. The advent of social media has revolutionized the, the uh, media profession. Uh, in some ways very good, in some ways uh, perhaps not so good for certain individuals. But I, I think it's, it's something we need to be cognizant of. It's something we need to investigate thoroughly. You mentioned the radio side. I mean, even here at Trine, obviously, we're not on right. WeActs at the moment. We're podcasting. Absolutely. I mean, again, what, uh, what kind of has led to that shift? I think the wanting what I want on demand is one of the major factors in that. We, we want to have it mobile, and we want to get our news or our podcasts, our interest items, 
uh, when we want them instead of when they're just broadcast this one time. And I think that's why we go to the streaming and to podcasts and that sort of thing. I know in the news media, which is my background as well, there has just been all sorts of cutbacks and downsizing. And, it, and it's not just the newspaper world that I come out of, right. but uh, radio has seen it, even TV broadcasters I know talking, interacting with some of the TV stations down in Fort Wayne, how they've uh, had to consolidate their staffs. Right. What's brought all this about? You know, I, I think part of it is due to the shift in the business model. We used to be able to support our radio stations and our newspapers with the advertising that we would do, the little ads we'd see or the, the commercials, the paid commercial announcements that we would have. And those were our, our bread and butter. And now with the advent of social media and the advent of people just wanting things online or on their, their phone, we have to have a different model for how we generate revenue. We can't just say, uh, buy our ads. We have to say, okay, respond, click this many times on this <laughs> image that we're putting out. And it, it, makes a, it makes the pitch to our clients who are purchasing time or space in our newspapers, it makes it an entirely different pitch. And I think that that is something that we haven't all adjusted to. I was say, where do you see it going from here? Well, don't get me started on fake news, <laughs> because I, I think that one of the things that concerns me is the polarization of our media. Um, that, to me, is a real problem. And, you know, in, in my day, I defined fake news as news that was generated that had no factual basis. But now it seems like the definition for fake news is almost anything. Uh, anything I don't like to hear or anything that doesn't fit with what I've heard from this other station, I'll label it as fake news. And I just think that that's a real problem for our culture, a real problem for our society, that, that we feel that way about it. And the fact that the stations are so polarized makes it difficult for a person to make an intelligent decision. An intelligent listener, an intelligent viewer, an intelligent reader has a real challenge in knowing which information is indeed factual information and which is opinion, <laughs> you know, which is slanted. Uh, I think there's an inherent bias in almost any report, but we try to minimize that. Professional newscasters like uh, you uh, certainly know that you have to verify your sources. You verify those facts before you publish them, but on Twitter and Facebook and other social media formats, we don't do that. The news is out there, and it, it's spread to millions of people before we can catch it. And I think that's a problem for our society. We're reacting, uh, you know, gut reaction, spur-of-the-moment reaction. We're not checking things out enough. How did this all come about? I mean, it, it, talking about, you know, the polarization, the MSNBC versus Fox mm -hmm. News or whatever, how did, how did this develop? This is pure conjecture on my part, but I think it's pretty much because of the demand for popularity. Uh, we want to sell advertising. We have to pay our station. We have to have this half hour filled with something that will generate revenue. And it's much more popular to be wildly emotional, to be way out on the left or way out on the right uh, than it is to be mainstream, than it is to be middle of the road. And uh, I think that that is, has been a factor. We are... Almost a lot of stations, a lot of announcers, uh, I won't say announcers because I respect announcers, a lot of personalities <laughs> uh, on radio and TV and broadcast, etc., are really pandering to the public, and I think that's a mistake. 
how how does that work out economically? Because I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you know news was ABC, NBC, CBS. Yep. That yep. was it, and then you know before the advent of all these cable stations, and so now you you've got all these and out on the fringes, and there's even multiple outlets that are trying to cater to those, you know, and they're all competing for advertising dollars. They are. They are. Well, one way that they're doing it is uh, with the advent of, of restricted access, people are now having to pay for access to the information or access to the programming that they want. And I think that is a result of the shift in the business model. The, the stations are trying to generate revenue, and they can't do it through the, the old ways that they used to. So now instead they're saying, well, if you want our programming, you have to buy our Netflix. If you want our programming, you need to, to subscribe to the Times. If you want this available to you, you must pay. And I think that the paying up front is something that is a new feature in the business model. Say coming from the newspaper world, I, w- I was at a... Uh you know, at a, a newspaper group that mm-hmm. implemented that, what's called a paywall, where right. you have to purchase a subscription to be able to access the uh, online content. But how does that compete when you have, when, when everybody's competing and you maybe have some who are going to try and offer it free and stick to the old business model? How does, how does that all shake out? Ergo the pandering. <laughs> we, we go to people who are satisfying the, the public. I mean, one of the things I try to do with the theater program, not to be circular in my reasoning here, but one of the things I do in the theater program is we provide our performances free to the public. I want to continue that even as we move into doing more sophisticated productions and musicals, which are much more expensive. I feel it's important that people have free access to certain times of cultural, certain kinds of cultural events and certainly news events. And I think that um, we're moving to a model that, that precludes that and instead Again, I'm using the word pander too frequently, but that, that panders to the audience too much. Because you mentioned it, you're looking at doing some musicals here in the future? As a matter of fact, in the spring, April uh, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, we are doing uh, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, uh, which is a musical. It's a fun musical, and it involves a, a fairly large cast and a lot of very good voices. Okay, we'll be looking forward to that. So, Thank you. Um, kind of circling back to the, the news what can the average listener or viewer do to make sure that the news that they're getting is accurate? All I can do is say what I do myself and what I suggest to my students, and that's don't rely on one news source. Go to different networks, go to different sources of that information, and then as much as you can, confirm that information with different sources. Um, I think it's very important that we develop them a mindset that we're not just being fed by Fox, we're not just being fed by MSNBC, we're not just being fed by CNN. We are selecting what we want to see. We have that capability. We just need to take the responsibility, if you will, to actually look at different sources and listen to opposing points of view. One of the courses I teach is argumentation and debate, and one of the suggestions I make is that there's a very solid argument on both sides of any controversy. You just need to dig to find the facts. All right. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Byron Bond for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Uh, Be sure to check back at TrineRadio.com for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.